The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. Let me invite you to take your scriptures this morning and go to Daniel chapter 3, please. Daniel chapter 3. We'll be looking at the entire chapter, but let's set the context this morning by going to Daniel chapter 3, and we'll begin reading at verse number 14. The Bible says, Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, It is true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up. Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. This morning I'd like to talk to you on this topic, at what time you hear the music. Let's bow for prayer, shall we? Father God, we love you today. We thank you for the opportunity we have to spend a few moments in your word. Lord, please help me today. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to clearly, accurately, and interestingly present truth. And Lord, I pray that your spirit will have free course in our chapel hour, that he would infuse within us the principles from God's word. And Lord, I pray that we'll be more determined to stand for you in difficult days as a result of our time together in the scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is there any religious persecution in America? Some people might be tempted to say no. But what if we were to talk to Jack Phillips, who fought eight years of legal battle because he refused to make obscene cakes? What if we were to talk to Baronel Stutzman, a florist in Washington, who received legal ramifications because she refused to do a floral arrangement for a same-sex union. Maybe we could talk to Coach Joe Kennedy, who was fired simply because he chose to pray before sporting events. Someone has defined persecution as hostility or ill treatment due to religious beliefs. And if that is a workable definition, then certainly we would have to say, at least in some segments of our country, there is such a thing as religious persecution. And if things continue in the trend that they are, I think that many of us are going to have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do at what time we hear the music? When we are told to bow down to a philosophy that's at variance with the Word of God, how are we going to respond? Are we going to bow Or like these three Hebrew children, are we going to stand? I want us to think about this this morning from three points. First of all, think with me about the problem that believers face. 
the problem that believers face. We see this in the first 12 verses. Now, to understand the significance of this image in chapter 3, you have to go back to chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a statue, and this dream was interpreted by Daniel in light of what God had said about it. The statue, remember, had a head of gold, which represented Babylon. It had shoulders of silver, which represented the Medo-Persian Empire. It had thighs of bronze, which represented Greece, and then legs of iron, which represented Rome, and then feet of iron and clay, which represented a revived Roman Empire. That's how Daniel interpreted the dream under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, in response to that statue that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed about, There is another statue that Nebuchadnezzar erects, and this statue that he erects is a great problem. First of all, it's a factual problem. We must remember that you and I are made in the image of God. We do not make images of ourselves. We are made in the image of someone else. We are designed to reflect the glory and majesty of God. Therefore, when we erect an uh, idol in our image, we're implying that we are the ones who possess glory. We are the ones who possess majesty. And of course, this is a factual error concerning deity. We are not God. He is God. But not only was it a factual error concerning deity, it was a factual error concerning duration. You remember, the gold gave way to silver. The silver gave way to bronze. The bronze gave way to iron. The iron gave way to iron and clay. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was not going to last forever. It was a limited kingdom. It would give way to something else. But Nebuchadnezzar, when he erects his statue, he erects it all of gold, implying that he's the totality of all time and all events. Such is not the case. Factual error concerning deity, factual error concerning duration, and also factual error concerning determination. You understand that these metals in the dream were all in decreasing value. Our world is devolving. Evil seducers are waxing worse and worse. So the gold gives way to silver. The silver gives way to bronze. The bronze gives way to iron. The iron gives way to clay. All of it in decreasing value, but Nebuchadnezzar puts the whole thing of gold and he says, there is, in my determination, no decrease in value. And in all of this, the idol that he erects is not according to reality. It is a factual error out of step with the revealed will of God. But not only is it a factual problem, notice secondly that it's a federal problem. Daniel goes to great lengths here to list the government heads. There are princes, there are governors, there are captains, there are judges, there are treasurers, there are counselors, there are sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces. You understand it seems as if every level of government is behind this statue. Not only there, buying into this philosophical error, but absolutely excited and giddy about it and promoting it and is there for the dedication of it. Commentators don't even know where Daniel is at this point. Perhaps he's been marginalized by the government, but the text is clear that virtually everyone in government at this time is buying into this errant philosophy. We are hard-pressed to find a government official who's in touch with truth. It's become a federal problem. So we see that it's a factual problem. It's a federal problem. It's also a forensic problem. Because laws are passed to function according to the state religion. And the state religion is essentially the worship of the state. You have to bow down and do what we say. 
And if people worship outside of the dictates of government, then they are punished. The government actually takes a law as club in its hand to deter religious liberty. And now what is a governmental problem has also become a legal problem. It has moved out of a federal problem into a forensic problem. And thus it also becomes a familiar problem. There are three means that are used to indoctrinate the public. The first is music. This should not surprise us because music is a very powerful tool. You know, music can actually get you to sing things you don't even believe. I was out many years ago with my pastor on visitation, and we were knocking door to door, and all of a sudden he started singing the theme from a Budweiser commercial. Now, obviously, my pastor did not believe in the value of beer, but he'd watched a good many football games where he had seen beer commercials and he just started singing, here comes the king, here comes the big number one, even as we're on soul winning visitation. You understand that music is a very powerful tool and it is employed to indoctrinate people. We have to be careful what we listen to. Years ago, I was talking to a guy who had founded a, an addictions ministry, and I asked him, through all the addictions that you have encountered, whether they're substance abuse or sexual addictions or even eating addictions, have you found anything that is a common denominator among all addictions? And he said, there's only one common denominator that we have found, and these are his words. Every single person was listening to a music of rebellion. Music was the only common denominator. Music's a common tool. In addition to making it a familiar problem through music, they made it a familiar problem through a majority. All the people, notice the terminology, all the people bow down. This is the same argument we used for morality with our parents when we were little. Mommy, everybody's doing it. But you understand that 51% does not equal morality. But we tend to think that it does. If society buys into it, then maybe we should too. And finally, for lack of a better term, not only did they use music in the majority, but they also used a mole. They were being stalked in order to be reported upon. Now, please understand, I think, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. But at the same time, if we think that our employers are not looking on social media to find out what our posts are about to determine if we need sensitivity training or not, we might be a tad delusional. Indeed, some people are today being fired, not merely because of their ability or lack of ability on the job, but because of their religious beliefs, because they are not sensitive enough to the abominations that are in our society. A great example of this was several years ago when the Oral Roberts University basketball team made the NCAA tournament. It was a uh, big deal for an evangelical school. But some people were even arguing that even though they were a good basketball team, they should not be allowed to be permitted to play on the court in the NCAA tournament merely because their student body had taken a stand against homosexual relationships, which had nothing to do with basketball. The problem is becoming all too familiar. You understand that it's a factual problem. It's not according to reality. It's become a federal problem. Government has embraced it. It's become a forensic problem. The law is now engaged, and it's becoming all too familiar in our society. We're witnessing it. This is the problem we face. But now think with me about the problem that we face. Think with me, secondly, about the motive the world possesses. Now, a, little, a legitimate question could be, what motivates all of this? 
Well, the Bible does not leave us in the dark as to what motivates this. It tells us two things. First of all, there's a lust for power. I think the words that should jump off the page to us are the words of Nebuchadnezzar when he says, I have set up and I have made. The thrust here is on what Nebuchadnezzar can do. The very fact that Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image of himself, and it's all of gold. Remember, he was the head of gold. Now he's the totality of gold. This shows us that Nebuchadnezzar has great lust for power. He does not want his kingdom, his empire, to give way to anything else. I used to have an associate pastor who said, you know, the world would just be a better place if people would learn how to worship me. And sometimes we feel that that's true that the world would be a better place if people would learn how to worship us. And such was the case with Nebuchadnezzar. He had a lust for power. But not only did he have a lust for power, but this lust for power led to a lot of peevishness. When you want to be God, now this is very important, when you want to be God, you're going to be miserable. Because not everybody's going to worship you. And when we discover that not everybody's going to worship us, it really does great on our nerves. Indeed, psychologists tell us that there's only one way to stop somebody who has a messianic complex, and that's to put them in a room with somebody else who has a messianic complex. So one says, God sent me here, and the other one says, I did not. You understand, by definition, there can only be one supreme being. There cannot be multiple supreme beings. And if I anticipate that I should be that supreme being, I am going to be cranky (laughs) because it is not going to happen. So we're not surprised to find that this lust for power gives way to rage. It gives way to fury. Nebuchadnezzar's lust for power gave way to a lot of peevishness. Which brings us to our final point this morning, which is the response that God desires. The response that God desires. Now, if we see the world as it currently is, and we begin to understand why it's that way, then the question we could ask ourselves, well, what does God expect me to do about it? How does a Christian respond to all of this? Let me suggest several ways. First of all, this morning, let me encourage you to trust the power of God. The word here translated careful where they said, we are not careful to answer you, Nebuchadnezzar. It's interesting that this same Hebrew word in Ezra chapter 6 and verse number 9 is translated, have need. Ultimately, they were saying, we don't have any need, Nebuchadnezzar, to answer you. In other words, we are not predominantly answerable to human authorities. Ultimately, that is not true. Ultimately, we are answerable to the divine authority. And if it comes down to serving God or man, there is no arbitration between this. We worship God and God alone. This becomes evident in verse 17 where they said, he is able. We're not going to worship somebody who has limited power. We're going to worship the God who possesses all power because he is able to deliver us. I submit to you that one thing that keeps us standing when the music begins to play is the fact that we understand we serve a God who is able to deliver us like nobody is able to deliver. Tis the grandest theme through the ages rung. Tis the grandest theme for a mortal tongue. Tis the grandest theme that the world e'er sung. Our God is able to deliver thee. Trust the power of God. 
Secondly, not only did they trust the power of God, but notice, secondly, they trusted the providence of God. Interesting, they believed that God could. They were just not sure that He would. Notice those words that begin verse 18. Our God is able to deliver us, and He will deliver us. But if not... (laughs) Isn't it interesting in the book of Acts, as we just saw Wednesday night in church, Peter is delivered... But James is not. We read the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. There are men who conquered the enemy. There were men who were conquered by the enemy. This goes on throughout the entire Word of God. I'm reminded of what was said at the tomb of Lazarus when it said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind had made it so even this man had not had died? You understand, sometimes we don't understand why God delivers and sometimes why God chooses not to deliver, but we do know this, that the judge of all the earth does do right. Whatever God does is right because God is the one who does it. Therefore, we do not serve their gods or worship their image because not only do we trust the power of God, but we trust the providence of God. Notice thirdly that we trust the presence of God. Nebuchadnezzar is so enraged, he heats the furnace up seven times hotter. He binds the three Hebrew children in combustible clothing. Indeed, the furnace is so hot that the mighty men, notice the terminology, the mighty men that throw them into the furnace, they themselves succumb to the heat. But it's interesting, as these three children are hurled into the fire, only one thing is burned, and the only thing that is burned are the cords that bind them. They are thrown in bound, but they are walking around in the fire loose. And the answer to all of that is found in verse 25, when we discover that there's a fourth man walking with them in the fire. I've been through the valley, I've been through the fire, I've walked through deep water, I've bowed in the mire, i fought in the battle with courage all gone, but this is the reason I always go on. Jesus is with me, my shepherd and guide. All that I need, He is there to provide. And that makes the difference, this friend by my side. Jesus is walking with me. I want to go on record this morning, the fire may indeed get hot. But I want to submit to you that no matter how hot the furnace gets, someone walks that fire with you. Indeed, they would not even have known the manifested presence of God in this way had they not stood when others bowed. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, the psalmist said, for thou art with me. They trusted the power of God. They trusted the providence of God. They trusted the presence of God. Notice they also trusted the plan of God. Several things become evident. The three came through. I like the terminology. They came through the fire. You understand that no matter what happens, the fire is not the end of the story. Even if they succumbed in the fire, the fire was not the end of the story. We have something, ladies and gentlemen, that is waiting for us on the other side of the fire. They came forth from the midst of the fire. And this was a witness to all the government officials who saw it. The testimony was so powerful that Nebuchadnezzar himself changes his edict. And if the king converts in chapter 4 after he goes through his madness, and I tend to believe that that's true, if he converts, I want to submit to you that the opening testimony that began to work in the life of Nebuchadnezzar and 
start the track towards his conversion was what happens here with these Hebrew children. As Paul would say later, listen to me, Paul would say from a prison cell writing to the church at Philippi, he would say, what things have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. You understand it's only because they went into the fire that Nebuchadnezzar was able to say, there is no God after this sort. And this would change the way Nebuchadnezzar viewed his edict making. I want to submit to you that you and I need to trust the plan of God because even as we're going through the flames, you understand God's doing something that we may not know that he's doing. Indeed, us going through the persecution may actually be a means for us to take the gospel to places that we never would have been able to take it. It will help us witness in courts and before federal officials. And I submit to you that mighty people in our land, humanly speaking, may know that there is a God who would have never known such had we not gone through the fire. We need to trust that plan of God. And then finally today, I want to trust tell you that we should not only trust God's power and his providence and his presence and his plan, but we should trust the promotion of God. The promise of God is clear in scripture that if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt us in due time. Now that due time may be in this life, it may be in the life to come, but there never is a person who's humbled himself under the mighty hand of God that God has not in due time exalted. I dare you, I dirt dog double dare you to name one of these government officials who bowed down that day. We can't. Name me one of the ten spies that gave an evil report. We can't. History is laced with the no-names of people who capitulated to the spirit of the age. But the chapter headings of history are filled with men who had the courage to stand while the music played. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. This day the noise of battle, the next the victor song. To him that overcometh, a crown of life shall be. He with the king of glory shall reign eternally. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is a day when idols are worshipped. Even God's people are caught in their snares. Good men have fallen. Standards are shaken. What is the answer? Who even cares? Where is the man who gives up ambition Worldly desire is all set aside. Where is the man, though lonely be service, satisfied only in him to abide? In a world full of broken dreams, where the truth is hard to find, for every promise that is kept, there are many left behind. And when it seems that nobody cares, it still matters what you do. And there's a difference you can make. But the choice is up to you. Will you be the one to answer to his call? And will you stand when those around you fall? Will you be the one to take his light into a darkened world? Tell me, will you be the one? I want to submit to you this morning that the need of the hour is for someone to stand while the music plays. 
You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.